Hi everybody, I'm Oliver Roth, a Broadway producer at O. Henry Productions. You're listening to The O. Henry Report, the podcast by Broadway World, which gives you a -a one-of-a-kind look inside the business of Broadway. In the report, we pull back the curtain on the biggest stories, issues, and trends in the industry. This week, we're talking about underlying rights. In a conversation with theatrical attorney Andrew Farber, we'll learn when you need underlying rights, how to get them, and what the structure of an underlying rights agreement looks like. Then, we'll use the recent example of Who's Holiday by Matthew Lombardo to explore trends and issues in copyright law and how they apply to underlying rights. Lombardo will discuss his experiences in creating Who's Holiday, which parodies Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Jordan Greenberger, an intellectual property attorney, will then explain how an underlying rights dispute caused trouble for Who's Holiday, and how he went about solving that dispute through litigation. But first, here's what you need to know this week on The Great White Way. PBS set air dates for multiple shows, including Falsettos, Present Laughter, and Indecent. For more information on how shows get captured for broadcast, be sure to check out our last episode, which was all about video capture and streaming on Broadway. While we're on the topic of previous O'Henry Report episodes, remember our episode 2 conversation about how Mandy Patinkin pulled out of the Great Comet 24 hours after his engagement was announced? Well, two weeks after Betsy Wolf was announced to be in the upcoming revival of Carousel, the production announced that she would no longer be in it due to scheduling conflicts. Now in episode 2, we discussed what equity contracts look like between performers and the production, and in which cases the different parties, i.e. the producers or the actors, are able to get out of their contracts. The Broadway World message boards have erupted with speculation over what has happened in the Betsy Wolf case. Is she going back into Frozen? Did she get a movie deal? Or does it have to do with her current run in Waitress, which itself has been the subject of speculation this week, as Sarah Bareilles posted a video relating to a big Waitress announcement to come. Fans seem to have narrowed this announcement down to something having to do with the role of the Doctor, but speculation on social media has ranged from theories that the Doctor will be played by a woman, to theories that a big pop star would step into the role. Now, the former seems unlikely, as a gender swap of the lead's love interest would mean sweeping changes for the meaning of the piece. As to the latter, I've heard a few names, including Jason Mraz, who sang the Doctor parts on the Waitress concept album. Other names that have been floated on social media include Justin Timberlake and John Mayer, so stay tuned for more information on that. The Great Comet controversy continues to make headlines as the New York Post reports that a group of investors in the show has requested an audit. Most individuals with a stake in the cash flow of a production have a clause in their contract allowing them to perform an annual audit, but this right is not always used. These investors have questions about how a show that grossed in the million-dollar range every week has only returned about 15% to their investors. These numbers aren't that unusual, but only an audit will give them certainty that their money was handled correctly. Speaking of shows bringing in millions a week, Hello Dolly broke the Schubert Theater box office record, beating its own record for the sixth time so far, by bringing in $2.322 million in eight performances. Currently running shows are breaking house records all over the Great White Way. Dear Evan Hansen holds the house record at the Music Box, 
Aladdin, the house record at the New Amsterdam, the Lion King at the Minskoff, School of Rock at the Winter Garden, Phantom at the Majestic, Cats at the Neil Simon, Book of Mormon at the O'Neill, and Waitress at the Brooks Atkinson. And that brings us to grosses, and for that, I bring in BroadwayWorld.com's and my co-producer, Matt Timonini. Hey, Matt. Hey, Oliver. How are you, man? I'm good. How are you? Good, good. So the grosses uh, came out, and, and again, we're still struggling with that post-summer slump. Yeah, I think this week, it's kind of been up and down the last few weeks. Last week, we saw a rise mainly because of the two-for-one ticket deals from Broadway week. And then this week, we're back down to where we were two weeks ago. So this seems to be settling into where the norm would be without any incentives going around right now. That's right. And that Broadway week is specifically time to coincide with uh, this post-Labor Day lull, and it does do a good job at counterbalancing that. But then we, we do have this sort of return where shows go down and, and are in the red again. Not that much uh, of a deviance from any other year. Um, of course, we're down from the 2017 average. The total gross came in at just under $24 million, and last year we were at just over $22 million. However, there were 28 shows at this point last year, There were, and right now there are only 26 open shows, which means our gross per show is doing much better than it was. Yeah, and I think that's uh, that's an interesting thing. That means there's probably a couple of these shows that are buoying everybody else, things like Hamilton and things like Hello, Dolly. You don't see often multiple shows – well, first off, you just don't see multiple shows above $2 million very often, right. um, and especially not at the same time. Um, so I think the addition of Hello, Dolly – Getting back above two and a quarter million, up about two point three, is uh, is definitely helping the average. Not necessarily helping all the other shows, uh, but it's definitely helping the average. And I think the thing that kind of ties in with what you were saying about it being post Labor Day is is that what else happens after Labor Day? Kids go back to school, and so a lot of the family shows were hurt quite a bit. Right in the seven shows that had the biggest week-to-week declines, which, again, is kind of an arbitrary number, but just because it's easy to look at the red numbers on the on the grosses sheet, five or six, depending on how you want to couch this, of the seven biggest declining shows for this week were family shows. You know, you've got I, – I, I include Kinky Boots in that, in that number, but if you include Kinky Boots, you've got Cats, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Kinky Boots, Wicked, Anastasia – in School of Rock, and then Miss Saigon was in there at fourth. You know, that's a lot of kid-friendly shows, but there's just not a lot of kids around right now. Right, and the the only ones that really stayed healthy as ever are The Lion King and Aladdin. Those Disney shows that are the, the that are also the powerhouses that are that are sort of joined with the Book of Mormons and the Hamiltons and the Dollies and the Wicked's you know, in terms of shows that really don't get affected as much by. Uh, the ups and downs of the industry trends. Um, and that's something that we've, the, 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 the loss of money f- flowing into family shows is something that we've really seen since that Labor Day weekend. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and it's interesting that things that still were able to pick up money from the previous week, timing the Conways led the way, but that doesn't really count because it went from three to eight performances. Right. You got the Lion King and, the, and Aladdin. Those are tried and true tourist traps just by name alone. You had a Doll's House Part Two, which closed on Sunday, so obviously it had a nice little bump. But then you've got Come From Away, The Book of Mormon, Dear Evan Hansen, Hamilton, and Hello Dolly only lost about 5,000. So it's those shows that seem to be more adult-geared than kid-friendly. 
Right, and Hello Dolly, as we just talked about, coming off also a record-breaking week. Yes, exactly. They broke, uh, yet again, broke not only the box office record for the Schubert Theater, but for the entire Schubert organization as well. Yeah, so, the, you know, the, the general, the, I think the main thing to look at bet- since Labor Day and now is that you still have some of the weakness in the family shows. The powerhouse, you know, like the, the big tourist shows, the ones that are part of like the elite group are bouncing back to where they were. The, the, and, and when I say tourist shows, I mostly mean long running shows where New Yorkers have already seen them. Um, the other ones are still doing not, not nearly as well as they were over the summer. So things like Kiki Boots again, Cats, uh, Phantom, those shows, uh, even though they are, uh, big titles and often do really well in big tourism months, they still haven't returned to normalcy. The two shows that we aren't seeing on the gross reports this week, that were on it in previous weeks were two 2017 new musicals, Groundhog Day, which uh, received a Tony nomination for Best Musical, and Bandstand, which received a Tony Award for Best Choreography. Um, which brings us to the real estate on the Great White Way and what uh, houses have opened up, what new announcements have come. So, Matt, in the time since our last episode when we spoke, what new announcements have, have been made for shows coming in this season? Um, the only new thing that we know that is coming in um, for sure is John Lithgow's Stories by Heart, which is a one-person narrative storytelling show from the Tony and Emmy-winning actor John Lithgow. Um, that will be going into the American Airlines Theater, fitting nice and neat in between Time in the Conways and Travesties. This is something that we talked about before, Oliver, about if uh, Roundabout wanted to get a musical in, they could fit something in between those two shows. However, it was unlikely because of how landlocked they were with right. Time in the Conways ending on the 26th of November and travesties starting on March 29th. So there's going to be about a three-week window um, on each side for load in and load out before John Lithgow's show comes in. Granted, it's really just him telling stories, so I can't imagine there's a ton uh, of set that will be needed. So that should fit very nicely. But then we also learned that Come December 30th, War Paint, the uh, original musical starring Patti LuPone and Christine Ebersol, will close at the Nederlander Theater. And that opens up another theater for the spring, which there's a lot of things swirling around that want to have one, uh, want to have a theater for the spring. Um, it'll be interesting to see what actually ends up going in there. So let's talk about the Nederlander Theater for a bit, because I think it's one of those theaters that has had problems keeping a show open in, the, in, in recent history. Before War Paint, we had... Um, I'll tell you the last thing in, in my memory, and it, it could be different, but the last thing that I remember being in there that was successful was Newsies. Right. Newsies ran for about two and a half years there. And then before that, Rent ran for 12 years. But after, after Rent closed, you, you go into some shows that were not there for very long. You had that revival of Guys and Dolls that closed very quickly. You had Brighton Beach Memoirs revival that closed very quickly. Million Dollar Quartet was there for a little over a year. Then you went into Newsies, which ran for two and a half. You had Honeymoon in Vegas, Amazing Grace, Disaster, that right. sit-down tour stop of Motown, um, mm-hmm. which which lasted, like I think it closed the day after it opened. And that was actually the last thing that was in there before War Paint. That closed on July 31st of 2016. And then War Paint came in on April 6th of 2017. So I think with the real estate crunch that we have on Broadway, just the fact that it sat open for that long shows you that people are hesitant about booking a theater or um, right. about booking a show into that theater. 
Right, and I will say, while we're on this uh, topic, kudos to Warpaint, which I don't think did as well as they wanted to with Tony nominations and mm-hmm. certainly not with, with wins, and has really been, you know, in, in the middle of the pack at best in grosses, but, is, but has managed to be open for very long, beating out two of the three 2017 Tony nominees for Best Musical and uh, a bunch of other... Uh, really great musicals, but they really have stayed open for so long, and I think that speaks to the selling power of the stars, and uh, maybe maybe not uh, anything that having to do with that theater in particular. I would imagine that that is is something that, as a producer, when you know that you're going into a theater that, and let, let, the Nederlander specifically, it's far away from the rest of a lot of the theaters in Times Square, so it doesn't have the foot traffic that you normally have there. So that's an inherent disadvantage, and you've got to kind of counteract that but i would imagine as a producer if you're going into a theater that you know has significant disadvantages that you have to plan for that in one way or another whether it's increasing the advertising budget or making sure you have enough signage or advertising in Times square or in hotels so that you can reach those tourists i would imagine that one of the reasons that warpaint has been able to stay afloat as long as it have and is going in through the end of the year is is because the producers of that show were able to put together a plan to keep it solvent as long as humanly possible. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that, that, you know, I, I actually, I haven't seen any of the, uh, paperwork for Warpaint, but you can tell just from the fact that it's remained open this long that they did a really good job with their financial strategy in making it a production that works, uh, in the Nederlander or wherever theater it had ended up. Yeah, and it's it's produced by David Stone and Mark Platt, and those guys those right. guys know they, how to do shows. They, they know how to they know how to do shows. Just ask uh, the people over at the Gershwin. Um, so I think the other thing that's uh, that we we we've talked about on the podcast before, but that's interesting is how many theaters there are now with tenants shows that are booked for the spring, but nothing announced for the fall. Yeah, there's five of those currently, um, and they are the August Wilson is vacant right now, um, and that will have Mean Girls coming in in March. Uh, then we've got the Jacobs, which is vacant right now. That'll have the Iceman Cometh coming in March. Then we've got the Imperial, which has Carousel coming in in February, but Carousel's marquee's already up, so thinking about putting a show in there is unlikely. Similarly, Three Tall Women, another Rudin show, is coming in in late February at the John Golden. And then we have a show that you're involved with, Escape to Margaritaville, coming into the Majestic, which is currently vacant um, in mid-February. So if you look at those five theaters, especially maybe the ones that have shows coming in in mid to late March, which gives them a little bit more time, you know, it's interesting that we've still got that many spaces unoccupied that the theater owners as we're getting now towards late September haven't said the illusionists are coming in or Kristen Chenoweth's going to do a concert for this long or we're bringing back how the Grinch stole Christmas or something so that they can kind of fill their theater during those busy holiday tourist months um, I, I'm sure they hate to lose the revenue that they know they can get at that point of the year yeah, that's, that's right. And I think we're in for an interesting spring. You know, last, this is the story of last year, although I think it happened a little bit with, with more of a space in between each production opening. But last year, there were just so many new things that opened so quickly that it was a battle for people to get the attention of the, of, of ticket buyers and to really gain the momentum that they needed entering into Tony season and entering into the summer to, uh, be the show that people wanted to see. This year, I think there's there's a lot of the same thing happening. There's a, a lot of announcements happening for spring, and there's really a few things that are coming in anytime before February. 
how much of that calculus goes into the decisions that producers make when it comes to here's what we know is coming in at this time of the year. We know we want to come in this season. So these shows are probably right. going to be open anyway, but do we want to open around the same time as them? Or do we want to give our show maybe a little bit of a chance to breathe on its own? So we open in the fall or do we want to get in there in the hot and heavy late spring awards season to kind of benefit from that? How much of that is part of the decision-making process for the producers as to when to schedule opening and previews? So I'll tell you, it's, it's actually uh, when it can be part of the decision-making process, it's a big one. More often than not, you are at the mercy of the theater owners True. who say, I have this opening, and if you can't get in there, you know, the theater is opening in uh, the first week of November, I can do load-in. If you can't get in there the first week of November, and we have another production that we also you know, like, uh, then you know, that can, then they'll go in. So a lot of times, you kind of have to work with, with the schedule of the theater owner. And really, the question is just if your show is ready to go, you know, if you feel the show is going to be ready, you make it work. But at the same time, I think that the there is maybe some strategy that can be involved with like, you can be offered the theater, you can sign the contract for rent, and then you can sh- shift around where your opening is to create the same effect. You know, I don't think there's as much of an understanding of how important that is. I think that's really important. And I, that's one of the things I look at every year when I uh, look at my Tony Award predictions is historical trends and when shows have opened and how they're able to leverage their opening in both in terms of what other productions surround their opening and in terms of how late in the season they open to gain momentum. And I think last year is a great example of, uh, though it doesn't, though it doesn't stick with the trend is a great example of how important this is. So Dear Evan Hansen opens, uh, remind me Matt, it was like in November maybe. Yeah, it was. Um, it, I don't know if the opening was in November or not, but I believe that's when per- performances right. started. So it starts previously in November. It gets this tremendous buzz, and my theory, or my, I, I contend that that buzz it, it was had a lot to do with why spring shows that you that would normally take a lot of buzz weren't able to penetrate the market because there was just so much buzz from Jared Hansen. And I think the question was, will that buzz fizzle out? To a point where something like Come From Away could become like a Tony contender, which it, which it ended up doing, and is now the only other show, new musical from last year that is consistently grossing above a million dollars. So that, uh, but but Come From Away also opened up in the winter, so there was sort of the inability for ticket buyers to go see the show, have a date in their calendar, and not get too caught up. Then you look at a production like Bandstand, which I thought was another excellent production that took the usually very successful strategy of opening right before the cutoff so that you could be the last thing on the voters' minds before it comes time to sit down and, and nominate. And I think what happened to Bandstand and some of the other productions that opened that late is people's attention was – like people were already expending too much energy and too much money in going to see the the, the must-sees of the, of the year that Bandstand didn't have time to accrue momentum prior to the Tony Awards. So normally a winning strategy, but because of how crowded that season was, again, because of how it interacted with other openings, didn't it didn't really play out the way it normally does. So though I just said all that, there are a lot of things that went into how successful Dear Evan Hansen was and how successful Come From Away was and how how much of a struggle Bandstand had to, to put up in, in order to run as long as it did. But one thing that I can say I'm pretty sure affected it was their decision on when to open. And there's, and there's really no way to know that ahead of time. Like, you know, there's no way to say for sure 
well, this show is going to suck all the air out of the room, uh, so we better get in before it. There's no way to kind of, I mean, you can predict a little bit, but there's no metric to know what word of mouth is going to be. There's no metric to know how much social media buzz there's going to be. You can kind of look at some things to gauge it, but it is as much of an art as it is a business and a science to try to figuring out the best way to produce a show on Broadway. Yeah, it's something that's that that I find really intriguing, and especially because I I do think that it's you know we talked in the first episode about sort of ways to quantify the arts um, and quantify the these things, and I I do deep down think that this is a more quantifiable uh, you know that, that that there are trends that you can pull out, not, not necessarily in predicting how much someone's going to talk about something, but what's what the reason I bring up last year is what's interesting is that, and I may sound crazy, but I think it's an example of only a certain amount of mental energy and time that people will take to talk about anything, including theater. Hmm. So for the first time, what I saw play out was that it wasn't as much, will this grow buzz or not? Bandstand was buzzed about. Come From Away was buzzed about. The problems that those productions faced is they were buzzed about too late. And my theory is that the reason that happened is because by the time the conversation about Bandstand happened, by the time the converse- conversation about Come From Away happened, other things had to patter out. Great Comet had to not become the head, you know, the topic of every headline. Uh, you know, all, uh, all the other uh, shows uh, that were announced had to not be the subject of every conversation. And so again, Come From Away, I think, just made the mark, and I think Bandstand didn't. And I think War Paint, you know, War Paint is in the similar situation as Bandstand. Opened late. Had some really powerful stars that kept it, um, that has kept it running, I think, but it hasn't been as buzzed about as the shows that opened in, from the fall to winter. And that, again, that's a really weird, really, really strange and, uh, and not fit with the trend. Um, I, I sort of think this, I have another theory that the scheduling sort of, <laughs> uh, was, 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 sorry, I'm getting into, this is like a, um, conspiracy theory, uh, segment <laughs> now, but. I'll but, get my tinfoil hat and right, put it on right now. Right. But, but, but it's just, it is interesting to think about, um, uh, that I do think that this, this change, this shift in trends sort of started with Hamilton because Hamilton was the first show, uh, since I think Hairspray to win the Tony with a summer opening. And. Hmm. Uh, so it's this interesting thing about uh, that I think that that Hamilton and the way Hamilton has totally controlled the way the popular, you know, the way that non theater goers talk about Broadway um, might have slightly shaped the the calendar. But again, I there are a lot of things that go into any of these one one things. But but I'm just sort of positing some some of the bigger factors, some of the bigger variables that might be involved. Well, and I, I know we need to get to the the episode proper here, but. To me, looking at it less as a conspiracy theory, but still kind of agreeing that Hamilton has kind of changed the calendar. Not that people are looking at shows that open in the summer or even in the fall and differently. I think it's just that Hamilton really threw off the entire schedule of Broadway to where there were shows that I'm sure once Hamilton decided that it was not going to come in in the 2015 season, which... It very rightly could have and could have right. really upended everything in that season. Once it announced that it was coming in very early in the 2016 season or the 2015-2016 season, I think a lot of shows started to stagger their intentions. And and I think it just kind of pushed things back so that the cycles that we normally see on Broadway 
weren't like the tides. They weren't the same normal schedule we see every year. And just something, nope, okay, this is going to be a really terrible pun. <laughs> but Hamilton was like a hurricane, and it just came in, and it changed all of the tides. See, like, the, in the eye of the hurricane, like, it even goes back yeah. to Hamilton. Um, but <laughs> I think it really changed the schedule of the tides of Broadway so that the schedules aren't what they normally were. So you have shows like Come From Away and Jeremy Hansen opening in the – you know, not not the summer, but the the fall, and and kind of being able to carry that momentum through the holidays, through the spring, through award season, and they're now still grossing over seven figures every week. That's right, Matt. I, I love when you come on because we we always Matt and I always email about doing a a five minute uh, gross <laughs> and 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 real estate seg- segment, and then we always get into these conversations that end up lasting a while. But 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 I promise we we will uh, now get back to talking about underlying rights and uh, and parody. Before we get to underlying rights, just a few other things that you should know about this week. The New York Attorney General is investigating corporate governance at the nonprofit organization AMFAR after news broke that Broadway producer Harvey Weinstein made contributions to their silent auction on the condition that half of the proceeds get donated to the ART, the Boston Regional Theater which housed the world premiere of his show Finding Neverland. Weinstein's agreement with ART provided that these donations could be returned to the commercial production company and therefore the investors. This brings up questions as to the relationship between the commercial production and the nonprofit theater. A list of the top 10 most produced plays of the 2017-2018 season was announced. Leading the pack were Shakespeare in Love, Fun Home, and Skeleton Crew. We talked all about licensing in episode 3 of the O'Henry Report. Be sure to take a listen to learn more about how licensing works. Our main story today is about underlying rights. This comes on the heels of a court decision involving Whose Holiday, a play by Matthew Lombardo which was scheduled to run last winter at New World Stages, starring Tony Award nominee Jennifer Simard as a 45-year-old Cindy Lou Who, the character from Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch Stole Christmas. In it, Cindy Lou Who describes her struggles with addiction, prison, and domestic violence in the years since we last saw her as a toddler in the original Seuss story. After the marquee went up, press went out, and tickets went on sale, the production had to shut down before opening because Lombardo received a cease and desist from Dr. Seuss Enterprises, the rights holder of the underlying work, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Lombardo sued Seuss Enterprises, claiming that though he didn't have the formal rights to Grinch, Whose Holiday was a parody, and therefore it did not violate copyright. On Friday, September 15th, Judge Hellerstein, a United States District Court judge in the Southern District of New York, ruled in favor of Lombardo that Whose Holiday was a parody of How the Grinch Stole Christmas and therefore did not violate the underlying work's copyright. So, what are underlying rights? When do you need them? When do you not need them? And what does the case of Whose Holiday teach us about how rights disputes can disrupt production of a show? To talk to us first about the process of acquiring underlying rights, I talked to Andrew Farber, who is a theatrical attorney and serves as production counsel to Who's Holiday. Before we start talking in particular about Who's Holiday and what it means for copyright law, 
I'd like to start with a general discussion of what underlying rights are and how to acquire them. So, Andrew, if you are a creator or a producer and you would like to produce a work that is based on or derivative of someone else's copyright, what's the first thing that you have to do? Well, the first step would be to obviously identify the underlying material and then determine who is the copyright owner of the specific material so uh, and whether there are multiple owners and that may uh, require doing a copyright search or it may be a lot uh, easier than that by just looking inside the book or film credits but essentially you need to reach that person who holds the stage rights to the underlying material. And how do you do that? Is it just a simple Google search or do you hire an attorney? Well, I think you want to contact an attorney or you can do some of that information on your own. There are, there are firms that specialize in doing copyright searches. If it gets complicated, you're absolutely going to want to bring in an attorney. But if you're looking at uh, a book that was you know, written 30 years ago that's been out of print, you may be able to contact the original publisher and the original publisher will connect you to the uh, representative of the underlying rights owner, the author. It's usually a little bit of uh, searching around, and generally they're not too hard to find. It's once you've found them, it's engaging them and getting them to move forward with the process that gets a little more difficult. So once we've found the copyright holder, we start negotiating with them to try to enter into an underlying rights agreement. What might that agreement look like? What gets negotiated? How does the arrangement between the current producer or the current playwright and the underlying rights holder look? Sure. Uh, Typically, the underlying rights agreement, uh, uh, unless there are sort of special circumstances, but typically it grants the um, producer or the author who's um, acquiring those rights the right to adapt the underlying material, to subtract from, to add from, to add characters, to to basically uh, use it as the basis for their, uh, uh, I'm going to use a musical as an example, for you, to use it as the basis of their musical, and they can hire whatever authors that they want, they can use any choreography, any designs, uh, they have the right to make merchandise, to sell printed copies of the script, of the music, of the lyrics, to do cast albums, and and basically the whole uh, menu of rights that would typically go hand-in-hand with the acquisition of stage rights. And typically, you will pay the underlying rights owner uh, some kind of fee up front, or possibly a fee in advance, or an advance, but they will get some sort of money up front, and then uh, grant you a certain period of time in which to get the project written. Um, and often there will be, depending on how many times they've been through this process or who's negotiating the agreement, there may be benchmarks along the way. For example, they may say within the first year of the option, you have to have engaged a book writer, composer, and lyricist. Uh, in the second year, you have to have had completed play done. In the third year, uh, a workshop. Uh, and then depending on the underlying rights owner also, they may have certain approval rights with respect to the choice of the authors and the general content of the material contained in the play. Um, ideally, you want to leave that up to your authors, so the less approval your underlying rights owner has, the better. And then they are compensated pretty much the same way as the authors are compensated. They'll get a weekly royalty, and generally it's tied to the author. 
Um, if it's a musical, they're basically getting the equivalent of what a book writer would get or a, one of the elements of the um, musical team. They share in subsidiary rights. Uh, and basically, they participate uh, with the authors in the income earned by the play for the copyright, the life of the copyright of the play. And so this agreement would be the same or at least similar no matter what the derivative work is, if it's an adaptation, a sequel? Um, they would pretty much look like an underlying rights agreement. I think a sequel uh, – I've actually not come across a sequel really, but I, I don't think it should be treated any – any differently. It may, a sequel may be a little bit more uh, narrow, but they would, I think, be less likely to grant rights in a sequel uh, before they've actually granted rights in the actual derivative, the actual work. Um, But there does come a time when the derivative work and the uh, underlying work merge for purposes of ongoing disposition and after a certain number of performances the rights merge and the book music and lyrics and the underlying rights essentially become one unit so andrew explain that to us for a bit so what does it mean when the underlying work and the new work merges on merger all the musical dramatic and subsidiary rights in the underlying material merge with the play and basically the play can only be disposed of as uh, a fully merged piece. And if merger takes place, then the authors have the sole exclusive and perpetual right to make, own, perform, sell, publish, encumber, copyright, um, and dispose of all of the rights in the play. And those stay with the authors. And the only way any of those underlying rights would go back to the underlying rights owner would be if there was some provision in the underlying rights agreement that uh, maintained if the underlying rights owner didn't earn a certain amount of income over a certain number of years, then the merge rights become non-exclusive and the underlying rights owner could then license a subsequent derivative work. So in other words, if there's a musical based on a book and they've merged, it means we won't see another musical based on that same book. That is the musical for that book. Correct. If mergers occurred, you won't see two musical versions of the same book. But if it were a very, very popular book with a very powerful writer, it's quite possible that that writer would say, if I don't get $70,000 a year in subsidiary rights income, then I'm uh, I, I basically your merger is becomes non-exclusive and I can then license a subsequent production. Uh, but yes, uh, uh, under most circumstances, when merger occurs, the author controls everything. So now I want to start talking about areas where there's a production based on underlying rights, but you don't need an underlying rights agreement, where producing that work doesn't violate the copyright of the underlying rights holder. And I think the first example of that is a work that's in the public domain. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's actually, you know, if someone comes to me and and starts talking about underlying rights, I always recommend they try to find something in the public domain. But essentially, if it's in the public domain, you can use that material and do whatever you want with it. You have no uh, concerns about a copyright infringement claim. And essentially, you can play with the material as much as you want. And how do you know when something is in the public domain? 
You have to look at the, the copyright laws of the various jurisdictions, uh, and that will tell you if it's in the public domain. I mean, generally, uh, most of the material that people come to me with is not in the public domain. Every once in a while, there will be something in the public domain. I mean, the United States copyright is uh, uh, life of the individual plus 70 years. There are instances uh, prior to the 1976 Copyright Act uh, that provided for different periods, but as it stands now, I believe it's life plus 70 years. Jordan Greenberger is the lawyer who represented Matthew Lombardo and whose holiday in their case against Dr. Seuss Enterprises. The central question of that case was not whether Who's Holiday was based on the underlying rights of How the Grinch Stole Christmas. That was undisputed. Rather, it was whether Who's Holiday fit into an exception of copyright law known as fair use. So Jordan, can you tell us what is fair use? Fair use is an affirmative defense to a claim of copyright infringement. Uh, there's a long, long history of fair use, and right now it's codified in Section 107 of the Copyright Act of 1976. Congress laid out four non-exclusive factors for the courts to consider in analyzing whether something's fair use. But basically, fair use is, yes, you are infringing a copyright owner's rights, but we're going to let you do it because it furthers the purposes of, of the Copyright Act and why the Constitution in the first place allows Congress to govern uh, copyrights, which is to promote the arts and sciences. So if you're producing a piece and you believe that it qualifies as fair use, is there anything you can do to prevent action being taken by the underlying rights holder that could potentially shut down your production like it did in the case of Whose Holiday? So it's – I think the best way of answering it is this is America. People sue each other and make claims, right? <laughs> There's not really a lot you can do to stop another side from doing something. But obviously the best you can do is have a work that's a fair use or doesn't copy. Uh, you know, there, there could be no viable infringement claim. Matthew Lombardo was the playwright and producer on Whose Holiday? So Matthew, we've heard that if you want to do a show based on an underlying work, you have to secure the rights from the owner of that work unless it qualifies as fair use, which is an exception to copyright law. And that the only way to really prevent the situation that you ended up getting into with this lawsuit is getting those rights or really knowing for sure that it's fair use. So Prior to putting up the production of Whose Holiday, did you ever think or did you ever contact the Dr. Seuss Enterprises to ask about buying the rights or at least clearing the production or letting them know that this was going to happen in anticipation of the run? We never contacted um, Dr. Seuss Enterprises because we knew it was parody and parody is fair use. There was a play about Charlie Brown. There was a play about Hermie the Elf from Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And we just moved forward because it was parody. And there was no letters from any of the other um, uh, authors or author representatives um, until we decided to take the play to New York, until I took what was called then Going Green and created Whose Holiday. So... A week before we were to start rehearsals, 
we all received cease and desist letters from Dr. Seuss Enterprises, myself, the director, the general managers, and most importantly, the Schubert organization. So Jordan, why was it this cease and desist in particular, the one that was sent to the Schuberts, that was so damaging? Not surprisingly, the contract with my clients said we have the right to terminate this agreement to use the theater for the play if there's any rights disputes or claims of infringement. Because technically, a theater owner or anybody else who's contributing uh, to or participating in copyright infringement can also be liable. Okay, so when the theater received the cease and desist letter, they basically said, we're not doing this anymore. <laughs> Good luck. These kinds of clauses are common in industry contracts, especially in the lease agreement with the theater and the option agreement with the producer, because the way that copyright law works, any individual or entity involved in or contributing to the infringement in any way can be liable. So, even if a producer is sure that there is no underlying rights issue or that there is fair use, if a theater owner is anxious to avoid potential lawsuit, they can terminate the lease. After receiving the cease and desist, Lombardo got a call from the Schuberts informing him that he had five days to resolve the dispute before the lease would be terminated. So Matthew, where were you in production when you received this phone call? You know, it's a week before rehearsals. Um, the set was designed. It's almost ready to be built. You know, we secured a Tony Award-winning design team. We had the actress. We had the director. We had the rehearsal space. The marquee was up at New World Stages. And then we received the cease and desist letters. Wow. So we're talking really far into the production process. I mean, not only were you spending money, I assume, in, in ramping up for production and getting ready for rehearsal, but you also probably had tickets on sale and money coming in already. Uh, tickets were on sale. We had done some preliminary advertising. We had already spent $100,000 of the $500,000 budget. And when I was walking down 49th Street, I see them taking down the marquee. And Jeez. It, 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 was, it was hard. It was very difficult, not just for me but for everyone else who came on board this project because they believed in this play. And it was, it was just such a disappointment um, for all of us because we were so looking forward, not only uh, you know, working together, but coming together because we believed in this play. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that was obviously really hard. I think what's amazing, though, is that this story does have sort of a happy ending, and that is because you decided to sue. And I think a lot of producers at that moment where the marquee is ripped down and money has been spent, a fifth of your budget has been spent, a lot of producers would have said, that's it, this sucks, um, but let's cut our losses, pick up shop, and you know, on to the next one. But when you sat down to consider your options, how did you decide that the way you wanted to proceed was to take on the Goliath of Dr. Seuss Enterprises in an intellectual property litigation. It was unanimously decided. Everyone was telling me that I had to go to court because I was the playwright, and I had to be the one to file a lawsuit against Dr. Seuss. 
you know, that's the last thing that I wanted is to, to file a lawsuit against, you know, this beloved, uh, you know, writers that children love everywhere, that families love everywhere. And, uh, but I realized I, I had to do something to protect my own intellectual property, but not only for me, for the people that worked on this show and for artists everywhere who might be facing this in their future. Jordan, this is where you really come in as the lawyer that's going to represent Matthew and the production in the litigation. And it's sort of a funny situation, though, because in most cases, you'd have the rights holder suing the person that they believe infringed on their rights, on their copyright. But in this case, Matthew files suit on the rights holder or against the rights holder. So explain to me how that worked. This was kind of a reverse lawsuit. Typically, in a copyright infringement case, you would have the person whose rights are infringed bringing the lawsuit and saying, hey, you're infringing my rights. I'm suing you for damages. Here, we brought a declaratory judgment action, which means that uh, we wanted the court to declare that Mr. Lombardo had not infringed Dr. Seuss's rights. So there was a dispute uh, whether or not, you know, before the lawsuit was even begun, there was a dispute whether or not uh, there was a fair use defense. And Mr. Lombardo proactively brought the lawsuit for a declaration that, in fact, he wasn't committing copyright infringement. Back to my conversation with Andrew Farber. So, Andrew, you decide you're going to sue, and part of the reason why you guys thought you had a good case is because there was a similar case with a production called 3C that the judgment went in the direction of the playwright and deemed parody. Can you explain how the 3C decision guided your strategy to sue in this case? Sure. The the 3C decision was um, parody, but... And it was very similar, I thought, factually to um, the Seuss, um, to whose holiday. They, he had taken uh, the characters from a very popular television show, Three's Company, and he had basically shown their underbelly and that the, the sweetness of their innocent lives was not uh, uh, the sitcom that we thought it was. Uh, uh, I, I thought it, it to, to a certain extent it was extending the definition of uh, uh, parody and fair use, and yet I thought it was very reasoned and made a lot of sense to me. And looking at that opinion, I felt that we fell squarely within the four corners of that decision, and I was um, I, I felt very confident that what we had was fair use. I asked Jordan Greenberger to elaborate on this. So your job in court is to prove that whose holiday constitutes fair use. And as you told us before, there are four items that a piece of fair use must match in order to qualify. And the first and most important of those is that the piece be transformative. More often than not, a piece of parody fulfills this transformative requirement. So in other words, if the work is parody there's a good chance it's fair use. And your job is to prove that it is parody, that it is fair use. So the question is, what is the legal definition of parody? Uh, that's a 
<laughs> There's a ton of case law on it. It's kind of an easy question to answer, but hard to put into words on the spot. Uh, but basically, a parody is poking fun at and ridiculing an original work, but it's doing so in a way that it comments and criticizes it. So it's not just taking a well-known work and using it for other purposes uh, that are unrelated. There's actually another decision from the late 90s that Dr. Seuss won involving uh, a satire of the cat in the hat and the O.J. Simpson trial. So it was around the time of the O.J. Simpson trial and somebody had come out with a work that was drawn in the style of the cat in the hat, uh, used similar rhymes, but it was about the O.J. Simpson trial. And Dr. Seuss was successful in, in joining the release of that book because the court found it wasn't a real parody. It was really a satire, which means that they just basically the defendants had picked a well-known work for their own purposes to uh, avoid the, the, the language that's used is avoiding the drudgery of working up something fresh. OK, so they picked Cat in the Hat because it's famous and they thought it would help them sell a story about the O.J. Simpson trial. But Parody, for example, with Who's Holiday, yes, it uses the style of Grinch. It does so for its own purposes, but in reference to and relation to the underlying work. Okay, and just to help put this into context, this suit into context, and this uh, strategy for suit into context with the discussion of underlying rights, there are plenty of situations in which there's fair use, but there isn't parody. Can you just give us an example of of something that might be fair use, but not parody? You know, there was recently a case that I, I didn't read the decision, but I read an article about it where uh, somebody had live streamed the birth of their child using Facebook and some news organization had uh, included a segment of it in their uh, reporting. And the person, you know, the father of the child who had done the uh, the, the live stream sued for copyright infringement and the court basically threw it out saying, you know, this was clearly fair use because it was for news reporting purposes and it served a totally different function. And again, just so that we can put this decision, this whose holiday decision into context with the discussion of underlying rights and fair use, what about an example of a fair use suit that it was decided that it was not fair use, that it was in violation of copyright? Since this is a theater-oriented podcast, there's a theater-oriented example I can give that's very recent, which is uh, the Broadway production of Hand to God included a segment where they uh, verbatim used the Abbott and Costello bit of who's on first. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the play or not, but basically there was a part of the show where I don't remember if it's the puppet or the... It's the yeah, the, the puppet. Yeah, you, you probably know better than I do, but they had used all or a significant portion of the Who's on First routine from Abbott and Costello in the play and got sued uh, by the owners of the Abbott and Costello work for copyright infringement. And ultimately, it went on appeal to the uh, appellate court, federal appellate court here in Manhattan that said, yeah, this is not fair use because you basically just picked up a well-known work and placed it in there, you could have picked anything. Why did you pick this one? How does it relate to uh, the play or the content? You know, basically, it's like sampling a sound recording in a song. You got to pay for it. 
uh, and so they were it was found to not be fair use. I wanted to clarify this so that it doesn't confuse anyone. Jordan is right that the case of Hand to God is a perfect example of a time where the court ruled that the use of underlying material was not in fair use. However, this issue is still being tried in court because the people who brought suit to Hand to God may not actually be the underlying rights holders of the East, so that is still being decided. So, on Friday, September 15th, Judge Hellerstein, the judge in your trial, releases the decision uh, and you guys win. He says that this is clearly fair use, uh, clearly parody, and there is no copyright violation. We just did not win. You know, we kicked Dr. Seuss's ass. I mean, it was so clear. This judge made, you know, it, it, it can't even be interpreted um, that there's any kind of gray area here. This judge said that this is unquestionably parody. It's very transformative in nature, and it would never encumber any of the money that Dr. Seuss would make on the Grinch because they're two separate markets. Jordan, as someone who has experience in litigating intellectual property and copyright claims for a while, what do you think this case, Lombardo versus Seuss, what effect do you think it'll have on the way that copyright law and fair use claims are brought and adjudicated in the future? So there's kind of two ways I would answer that. The first is, this is more of for the lawyers out there who might be listening, but it's it's an example of a fair use decision without the need to go through discovery, okay? There is other cases that exist that say, yes, all you have to do is compare the two works, but there's also cases uh, that didn't decide fair use until after there had been depositions, after there had been exchanges of documents. And I think this case strongly, or this decision strongly supports an argument in the appropriate case that the court can make a decision based on the works alone, simply having to compare the two works without having to go through the burdens of discovery. So just sorry, before before we get to part two, just just so that the non-lawyers out there can grasp this a little bit better. Sure. It, it sounds like in, in layman's terms, what what happened was and what the lasting element does that you're talking about is that in this case, it was decided that the work could be deemed as parody or, or fair use or not fair use by a comparison of texts and that any of the other sort of legal process-based things that would normally happen in litigation didn't need to happen. It was just, here are the two texts, here are our arguments as to why or why it's not parody. Yeah. Basically, for in layman's terms... What this really means to uh, people is that it's faster to get a decision and it's less money. Sounds <laughs> sounds good to, to a lot of playwrights and producers right. out there. Um, now I'll let you go on to the second thing you were going to say about the lasting impact that this decision might have. I, I think it's uh, hopefully going to encourage people to um, create new works and mitigate their fear of losing a federal lawsuit for copyright infringement. From mm -hmm. the moment I read the script of the play and compared it to the book, it was my opinion that there was fair use. Um, and of course, each case is different, but I think that this case is really going to encourage creativity and also serve to deter 
rights holders, especially larger rights holders who might view their economic superiority as a means to suppress the little guy from creating, uh, I, I think it's going to deter that and encourage creativity. Matthew, other than that you were right all along, what does this ruling mean to you? The best thing about this ruling is that years from now, there's going to be a young playwright who is going to write a parody of something, and he may be in the same situation as I am. And he may have to go to court and ask a judge to rule whether or not this is parody. The wonderful thing for that young playwright is he's going to be able to quote and use the Lombardo versus Seuss ruling to help. Um, so it's a, it's a win for artists everywhere in our free speech, um, especially at a time in this country where that is being, you know, encumbered um, as far as what we say, what we do, uh, who we are, who we choose to love. I'm, I'm just I'm, I was so happy with the ruling because the way things have been in this country since November, um, and I don't mean to get political, but free speech is very important and the right to create what we want and to protect our intellectual property as artists. And this is just, you know, one check mark on the side of the artists. Lastly, I'm not sure if you've thought about this yet or if you want to divulge, but now with this ruling, the piece can be performed. The show can go on. So will we be seeing more of whose holiday there will be a major announcement on october 1st thank you for listening to the O'Henry report we'll be back with a new episode the week of october 9th if you have any questions from previous podcasts or ideas for the next one tweet me at oliver henry roth i'd love to hear from you you can find the O'Henry report on broadwayworld.com itunes stitcher Tune in and Google Play. Basically, wherever you like to listen to your podcasts, we're there. Be sure to follow Broadway World on Facebook and Twitter at Broadway World for updates. You can find me on Twitter at Oliver Henry Roth, on Facebook at O'Henry Productions, and on the web at www.ohenryproductions.com. From myself and the rest of the O'Henry Report and Broadway World staff, thanks for listening. We'll see you in two weeks.